Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we speak with one of the owners of the Golden State Warriors, Peter Goober. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. Michael Barr is off. Eben, big story. Brian Colangelo and the Philadelphia 76ers. The conclusion we thought would happen, that Brian Colangelo would have to resign the position, but how we got here and what ultimately the investigation showed, not only odd, but what do you believe what the investigation showed? <laughs> yeah, so the the law firm that the 76ers hired, Paul Weiss, which NFL fans will, will probably know from a number of investigations and they've NBA. done, and NBA, uh, they concluded that the uh, a number of the accounts were actually not Brian Colangelo, but his wife. Well, do we have Instead, to set it up first, people who, if, if people don't know, that there were, what, five or six Twitter accounts and... They seem to know a lot of things about the Sixers, some health of the players stuff and, and internal thinking. And there were some metrics that implied that they may have all been run by the same uh, by the same person or out of the same place. Right. Okay. Uh, and and uh, the initial, obviously, the initial reaction was, wow, Brian Colangelo has burner accounts that he's divulging information on. Then the plot thickened when it turned out that one of those tweets happened while he was giving a press conference. But right away, Colangelo so, said, this isn't me. Somebody's out to get me, he He admitted to two said. of them. He said to two, yes. Yeah, the, other, the other three, he said, were not his. Uh, and yes, we don't have the details of the full investigation, but they made it clear that there is forensic evidence that implicates Brian's wife uh, in those other three accounts. Also says that prior to turning in her phone for the investigation, that she wiped it clean, that she reset it to factory settings. I don't think even Tom Brady did that before uh, Deflategate. Yeah, I think he didn't he just say, I don't want to give you my phone, yeah. there's personal stuff on there. But uh, is this where we are these days in just because it's the social, the other GMs, other presidents, they probably have these dummy accounts or had, and now they're wiped clean. And the big, the big infraction here is that he lost the trust of the players, the organization. You can't be telling even your wife medical information about players. Absolutely. I mean, the, the bigger thing than telling his wife, obviously, is the fact that she put it out there well, of course. <laughs> publicly. Um, but yes, I mean, you, you figure every major player, almost every executive in some capacity has Twitter accounts that are going to monitor what's going on. Uh, the difference here is that instead of just monitoring, uh, he and she decided to weigh in a little bit, and that got them into hot water. All right. Speaking of social and digital, Amazon is at it again. We know they have the NFL here in the U.S., but they're going from football to football. EPL can now be seen on Amazon. Yeah, and exclusively on Amazon. That's I mean, the that's, that's I was going to say that's the big thing. Yeah, that's yeah, the, the important the, word. The, here. We we talked about Facebook, their first exclusive live streaming deal with with, with baseball. Uh, this is Amazon's first exclusive. They've done NFL games before, but those were all simulcast. They got one of those bottom two packages from the EPL. It's not a big thing. It's a three year deal. They get two rounds or two weeks of games. It's about twenty games, I think, each year. Uh, but the fact that it's happening exclusively on Amazon uh, certainly kind of another hard of this change in, in, in media moving from broadcast over to digital. We don't know exactly what Amazon paid, but if they paid roughly what BT Sport paid for does that other matter? bottom package... Does, this is, I mean, does it matter? At this point, where the leagues are, where Amazon, where Facebook and Twitter, do the dollars matter? Because what I think they're trying to do from the company perspectives is get people comfortable on their platform, get people comfortable watching games, knowing that the real rights, the biggies, the premier games... We're still a little ways down the road from that. It matters in that the number, the total number, is significantly smaller 
than what the EPL got in its last in its last segment. So from from 2016 to 2019, EPL for its UK domestic rights 5.14 billion pounds. Uh, this new next set, which includes kind of the whole fractured seven units, including one to Amazon, 4.6 billion. You know that's 500 million dollar drop uh, in. The EPL's domestic UK rights. That is the Uh premier European domestic rights package out there. Uh, We always talk about how here in the U.S. with the fragmented media market, numbers are going to keep going up. I still think they will, and I think you do too. But... There is certainly a, a, a reverse argument to be made if you look at what the the the, the, the premier soccer league in the UK, uh, the fact that their rights went down so much. All right, now let's go into a story that I know you love. The Oklahoma quarterback, University of Oklahoma quarterback, Kyler was drafted Murray. by a baseball team. Yeah, so he's certainly not the first player we've seen in college to be good at multiple sports, uh, but he appears to be maybe one of the best at this stage. Kyler Murray, the quarterback for Oklahoma, the heir to Baker Mayfield at, at one of those premier blue blood football schools, uh, was drafted number eight overall by the by the Oakland Athletics. Uh, that comes with a monster signing bonus. He's agreed to a deal, apparently, that's just under $5 million. Not bad. Not bad at all. It also, I mean, because of the curiosity and the weird way NCAA r- makes out its rules, you're allowed to be a pro in one sport and be an amateur in the other. But you can't have a YouTube channel. Exactly. So Kyler Murray is going to be paid $2 million on top of what Lincoln Riley, his head coach, is making. Uh, paid more than anyone else at, at the school right now in its athletic department. Uh, but, as you said, there are there are NCAA kickers out there who are losing their eligibility because they have a YouTube channel. There is something messed up with this system, and in my opinion, it's great for Kyler Get, get get your money. $5 million uh, while being a college football player is not a bad setup. So the coach tells him to do something. He says, go take a high coach. Yeah, I mean, he's, certainly, <laughs> I he's, got, like he's got other options. There's no question about that. But it also highlights the, the huge difference between the way NFL and football handles youth uh, great college players versus what baseball does. All right, Eben, now let's get to this week's interview with Peter Goober. He is the chairman of Mandalay Entertainment and part owner of the, let's get the list ready, Golden State Warriors, L.A. Dodgers, L.A. Football Club, Axiomatic, which owns esports team Team Liquid. He's a New York Times bestselling author, television host, and recipient of the UCLA Medal in 2017. That is quite the resume, Eben. And Peter, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, tell me, Peter, what is it that attracts you and so many others to sports? There's a million things, they're core businesses for a lot of owners, but what attracts you to sports? I've been in an audience business my whole life. I've been in the movie business at the highest and most profitable and most enjoyable level in the music business and now the sports business and they're all about audiences how my look at myself as connecting artists and audiences broadly defined artists so basketball players singers composers uh directors actors television stars and of course baseball players basketball players football players all the teams that i own they're all artists and the audiences are the audiences Everybody keeps talking about in the industry, anyway, live and content and scale. There really is no substitute for live, though. That's what you're talking about, this sort of live experience and the aggregation of eyeballs through art artistry, whether it's sport or whatever else, correct? Well, that's correct, but it, it, the iteration of that is why. Why is that so? Because the audiences in live sports are different than the audiences in music or movies. In music or movies, you don't make a difference in the outcome. I mean, if you go to a movie of Rocky and you see who wins, he wins. And I go, same guy wins. And then a year later on the plane, same guy wins. Then a later, a year later on a, on a disc, same guy wins. But with sports, uh, live sports, 
the audience feels they are participants, not just passengers. And that makes all the difference. It makes a difference how they own it, how they watch it, how they, how they pay it forward. It is a monumental difference. And the reason why it's so important, I mean, why it's so critical, is that sponsors are looking for emotional engagement for the product that they sponsor. They want that emotional engagement to attach their information, their proof of process, their product to, so it metabolizes in the audience. And that's what live sports does for sponsors, and that's what live sports does for the audience. And ultimately, it is the same whether it's on television or whether it's at the venue. Right, Peter, I say this with tongue firmly planted in cheek based on what you just said, though. I can counter your argument with the NBA and your part owner of the Warriors. Same guy wins. No, no, no. Of course, like I said, I hope the same guy wins and wins <laughs> me. But, but the, it's a question of managing two human, absolutely key human needs. Two of the seven human needs are certainty and variety. Sports gives you the certainty, the rules the privilege of, of owning a team as a fan, and the variety of the uncertainty of the outcome. That's what is so compelling about it. It fits right in with that pattern. And that is something that is, you can see, used to actually not compete against the Internet or not compete against digital technology, but everybody in the audience is analog. There's nobody that's digital. We're not interested in zeros and ones. We're interested in oohs and ahs. And that's what sports gives you. So no binary coding when it comes to sports. I like that. That's your statement. <laughs> binary, to me, is win-lose, too. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, that is the binary, the win-the-lose, the, the zero, the one, and the code. So let's talk right. about the Warriors, four straight conference championships. Uh, what are you learning in 2018 about this whole NBA playoffs process that you didn't realize maybe in the, in the first year or two of this run? Really simple. We're going to need a bigger trophy case. <laughs> <laughs> how big can you go? Well, it's not a question just of how big. It's how shiny they are, how bright they are, but more importantly, what they mean. Not, not the trophies, but what the process means. The engagement in the process, the constant and never-ending improvement, the, the idea of always iterating, the idea of looking for opportunity even when you're at the top level. That attitude puts the aptitude of your team, your sports, your organization on steroids. I don't mean the steroids that the government doesn't want you to use. I mean the steroids that are in your body. Those elements that make you feel compelled, charged, ownership, complete compulsion, that's what you're driving. And how do you take a team like the Warriors, who have had a, a phenomenal five-year run, how do you make the Warriors a, a, a global brand on the scale that the Dodgers are at? You know, you think baseball, two teams at the top, no question, Yankees-Dodgers. What does it take beyond just a, a successful run to make the Warriors kind of that kind of brand within, within basketball? As an owner of the Dodgers, I sat, uh, oh my God, less than a year ago, in the owner's box next to the dugout in the seventh game of the World Series where the Dodgers hadn't been for more than 30 years. So what it takes is just cayungas. It takes just patience <laughs> and work and time. And it's, it's really about connection with your fans. It's about building the legacy of commitment of your fans, providing product to them, providing resource and resourcefulness to them that they, they, it's theirs. We're stewards of the teams, these teams, certainly ones that I own. I look at myself as a steward. I'm there to make that connection work, to provide value to that connection. It's in its simplest sense, you want that audience to own their experience, own the team, and virally market it. That's what you need for a continued success with any kind of franchise. It's that 
ownership that the fan has that it's theirs, that they make a difference in the outcome, that they come, that they pass it along, they talk about it, they narrate it, they listen to your show, they have arguments with you, they have arguments with their friends, they use the currency of the game and the dialogue and the issues around it to fill their life. That's what you have to do. It's a 24-7, 365 attitude that a team must have if they want to build that alliance and that allegiance. So the Dodgers can go 30 years without playing in the in the World Series, and all that that you just said continues, right? The fan fervor, you know, the, the brand that's able to market itself. Are the Warriors at that point now? Well, if the I next 30 years are bad, and, and certainly hopefully they won't be, but, well, but is the I Warriors brand Well, I don't know will be 30 years more, but I can say this, that what you do is you all elements count. So you build your brand, you build your bond, you build the team, you focus on players in the team, you focus on the coaching staff, you focus on building a venue, a palace, a place where people come that is emblematic of what you intend the team to do, to perform. We're building an incredible venue on the Bay in San Francisco, which opens about a year and a half from now. And that commitment, and that's both financial, emotional, time-wise, to do that, to place the team in that kind of a uh, situation and that kind of a venue and that kind of an opportunity is what you have to do. You have to be constantly in never-ending case of improvement. Change is part of the culture that you have to embrace if you're going to have a team on the floor, on the coaching staff, on the ownership, on the fans, everything. It has to evolve. For people who may not know your background, I'm going to, I'm going to tie this all together. You're talking about human attachment, you're talking about emotion, you're talking about affinity. And the name of your company is Mandalay Entertainment. And it came about because your mother used to read Rudyard Kipling's Mandalay poem to you. And that is about longing. It's about love. It's about uh, attachment. I mean, was the giving tree not on the shelf? She, this, this, is, this is highbrow stuff. But yeah. it seems to have stayed with you for your entire life, and you're applying it to the sport world. Well, it is. It's it, it's it, it's. You know, it's endemic to human nature. It's endemic to how we are. We grow attachments. We root for those attachments. We have loyalties. And you, you build that with a team. It's about, it's about creating emotional transportation. That's the business we're really in. We want to emotionally transport our audience to believe they make a difference, to come and watch their players, to narrate the story to their friends, to be our vocal advocacy to the fans and to the products that are, that are associated with the team. It's not. It's more than just you know, um, you know, putting five guys on the floor. It's putting our hearts, minds, wallets, feet, and tongue in the same direction. That authenticity is what the audience and the fans see. And if you are that authentic, you still have to win. You still have to be competitive. But you know, look at the Dodgers. The Dodgers have the largest throughput of any team in the world. Almost four million people a year go through there. So the idea is you have to build loyalty, but you have to surrender proprietorship. That doesn't mean you're not the steward, that you're taking care of all the pieces, but you have to do it. You know you're doing it in their stead, in their favor. We're speaking with Mandalay Entertainment Chairman Peter Guber. Peter, does technology help with building those connections, or is it a a distraction? I mean, I can see an argument for for both. Well, there is no doubt that technology works, because technology has been with us since we've We've been a human species. We developed language. That was a technology. We developed uh, physical communication. Then, then we developed electronic communication. And that didn't separate us. That brought us closer together. Uh, what we have is a digital world. And therefore, technology has been the connector between the artist and the audience. It's shortened the distance. 
expanded the, the breadth and reach of live touch. It's provided individuality to the users. It's done a lot of benefits. Technology that doesn't provide benefits is a cold comfort and disappears. It's, it's just interim for a second. But the idea that technology can reach the sport live in the whole world, I was laying on my bed in Tibet, in Lhasa, where four years earlier you couldn't even make a phone call. And suddenly I'm laying on my bed and I call down to the operator and I said, do you know the score of the Warriors game? And he said, well, we got the internet here. Would you like to? Well, you do. Oak. I hung up the line phone, picked up my mobile phone, went to my NBA app, and then I'm laying in the bed in Lhasa, Tibet, watching the Warriors. It brings audiences from all over the world. It allows them to see it in different forms, whether it's VR, whether it's live in the venue, whether it's on a mobile phone, whether it's on a PC or on linear television. So that's the, the benefit. Technology broadens the audience. It's, it's, not, it's a means. It's, it's a, me- a method. It's not an end product. We are chatting with Peter Guber, part owner of the Dodgers, Warriors, L.A. Football Club, eSports, Team Liquid. And Peter, one of my favorite stories from David Stern, who was among the first to sort of see this digital, global, flat world, was that he was in Timpu, Bhutan, a one-stoplight town. He walks into his hotel, and there he is, sees somebody looking over the shoulder on a computer, and he was on the NBA.com page looking at something Kobe Bryant. So how do you as an owner, and I can sense again, you're into the emotional attachment of it all, but with that comes monetization. How do you take advantage of this flat world, of the scale that the technology allows for in terms of monetizing what you've got, which is the athletic performance on the court in front of you? That's a really good question and one that you know many pundits cogitate on. Well, it, But it's really... The elements for the answer are pretty simple. You got a sport that doesn't have a lot of friction in it. Uh, one can play against one, five can play against five. You can play on hard rock. I was in Africa and Namibia, and it was a hard earth rock thing with a wooden backbone, a little metal rim, no net, and there were 15, 16 young people playing basketball. There's no friction. It's not like hockey and you need skates and ice and chillers and venues. It's not like American football with helmets and pads. The, the, it's, it's very frictionless, and it's very easy to understand. It's hard to play and hard to really know all the details, but it's easy to observe and watch. That and soccer are two international sports. Soccer's gravitated all around the world. Now it's really happening in the U.S., but basketball is gravitating all around the world. So if you do the math, in the United States, there's 330 million people. And just a few years ago, when there was six, uh, six billion, now there's seven billion people in the world, they didn't have access live to these games. Now, we have seven billion people that could be interested in it. They could watch it anywhere, from Namibia to Madagascar, to Japan, to the Arctic Circle. You can be not only on the game, you can be virtually there watching it on VR. You can be on your computer, you can be on your mobile phone, riding in a tractor with a hotspot and be watching the game, or talking to you, or narrating it with your friends, or connecting. This is the most important part, connecting with like-minded people who are against your team or for your team, so that you're participating in it. The math is simple. We've grown the audience in the United States where there's 300 million people. Now the target, of course, is 7 billion people in the rest of the world and growing. So I think that the numbers 
you know, if you just do the numbers, the numbers are on our side. Technology provides that. But most importantly, the sport itself can be participated in at a very easy basis all around the world. So, so I think the future is bright. So some full disclosure, you are an investor in a VR company. I am, yes. I am a very, 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 very significant investor in a VR company because I think VR is another means of uh, experience with a sport, and it gives them a proximity and opportunity to participate that's unique, but it doesn't take away from being there, because only 18,000 people can be in there, and there's 7.9 billion people in the world. So I think it gives another way to view it and participate in it and, and, and socially organize around it. So I'm excited about it, yes. Peter, you've espoused the, uh, the long-term growth potential of both basketball and soccer there. Uh, you also own the Dodgers. Where does baseball, in your opinion, fit into this flattening global sports business model? Well, a lot of ways. First of all, if you just look at in, in, in April and May, 50,000, 60,000 people in stadiums watching baseball six months before the, final, you know, the finals or the World Series or the playoffs, it tells you that the audience is there. Now, is the audience o- older by definition? Yes, it's older by definition. Is that an issue? Yes, you have to deal with that issue. Is there, are, are there issues around not length of game? That's the wrong expression. Pace of play is really what it is. Are there issues around it? Yes. But there's a lot of factors that are working to improve that, and I'm, I have a lot of expectations. I've been in baseball for 25 years, and I, I see the opportunities. Let me just share with you that the government just, uh, the Constitution, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court just passed a law allowing the states to enact um, the right to have gambling. That's going to change everything because there already is gambling. It's just in the dark corners of rooms and hidden underground. Now it's going to be part of the process like it is in Europe, and that's going to have a tremendous impact on sports. And I don't necessarily think bad because the same people that are gambling will gamble hopefully legitimately. And it'll provide more revenue to the players, to the teams. It'll provide a much stronger connection with sponsors because stronger emotional connection, bigger stake in the fire that the, that the people have that are dialoguing and betting around sports. And baseball is a narrated sport. There are spaces between all the things that happen in baseball that work very well for propositional betting on mobile phones. I think you're going to see it have probably one of the biggest upticks because of that. Let's talk about gambling for, for a second. From what I understand, California maybe not going to be one of the first states uh, to legalize it, but I do assume at some point in the next couple of years it will probably happen. Uh, what are you kind of positioning right now for your teams? What are you getting ready for? Do you want to see gambling in the stadium, in either on mobile or, or in specific locations? Is there? Are you going to see ads all over? What, what do you think the business opportunity is specifically for your franchises? Okay, First question first, and that is California. Yeah, yeah, California. And, and there was, it, no cannabis, now there's cannabis. You know, driving at a certain age, voting. It's just the pressure of times. What happens is there's so much money involved in it for it to be underground and for not the, the government to get the money and therefore the public to get the money and take it out of the shady corners. There's so much capital involved in it that I think it's inexorable that that there will be legalized gambling in any state, just like there's lotteries. Nobody wanted lotteries. Suddenly everybody has lotteries. So I think that's what's going to be the need for capital, for the government is going to be part of it. So I think that's coming, whether it's a year, two years, five years, four years, it's inevitable. Agreed. The second part is how it will operate, whether there'll be 
in venue gambling like there is in soccer in Europe, or whether it'll be all uh, transactional gambling over mobile devices or the like. I can't tell you. Some sports will, you know, will work one way, and other sports will work another way. I, I don't know. I, I don't have a firm opinion on it. I think it'll be explored, and I think it'll operate differently in different sports. That's hard to have propositional betting in hockey. It goes so fast that that you you, you could have score differential and player scoring, but a, a broad menu of items. I don't know. Baseball's very much so different. It's a narrated sport. A lot of space between activities could easily be that way. But the idea of the pull of that capital and the interest to make those fans more vibrantly involved. You go to a Nick game now, and you're in a Nick game, and the Knicks are losing by 14 points, and there are 15,000 people screaming like crazy in the fourth quarter, four minutes, three minutes before the end. Well, they're not there for the hot dog at that point, and they're not there to see whether the Knicks win or lose. That's already a foregone conclusion. They're there to see what happened with the spread. Did the fellow make the mark? Did he make his point spread? Did he make his points? So is that good? Is that bad? Or is it ugly? That'll be found out. Peter, you only messed up one thing in that little anecdote you had yes, right there. I know, you said you said the Knicks were down fourteen in the fourth quarter. It's the first quarter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, point taken. All right, we are chatting with Peter Goober, Mandalay Entertainment Chairman. And Peter, you obviously have scoured the globe. I mean, we've heard some of the places you've been. What do you see as the best opportunities? that are out there. Where would you deploy capital now saying, this is next, this is up and coming? Well, you do the math. Um, you do the math. In the U.S., most of us have been very um, uh, nationally oriented in our, our, our country. I grew up that way, so thinking, thinking the center of the universe was you know, New York, Boston, Los Angeles, Chicago, whatever it was. Yeah, there's, a, there's a famous, remember the famous co- cover of the New Yorker where it had New York, the Hudson River, and then China? Right. That's, like, like that's nothing exactly else matters. right. Or, yeah. or, or put it this way, in the in the entertainment business, in the movie business, and I was in every aspect of the movie business, we used to talk about foreign in the 70s and 80s. Foreign. You know why they called it foreign, what the picture were doing foreign? You know why they called it foreign? Because it was foreign to everybody involved. <laughs> that's why. Because <laughs> they didn't have intelligence around it. They didn't have the te- technology to deliver the product. Now they have the technology to deliver all these products sports, movies, music, television. So you do the math. Again, where would you aim for, for, for audiences? You've got 300 million people in a technologically advanced country. Uh, and I'm going to Asia. Deeply, We're going to Asia. And Asia, it's a billion, 600 million people, but all over the world. I mean, all over the world. And, and remember, with smartphones, you can get this anywhere. And you can dialogue with anyone. And you can be, sponsors can reach everybody. That's a formula that is emphatically powerful, and I think that's what you're going to you're going to see. Hearing you talk about new technology, specifically about Asian growth markets, esports certainly comes to mind. Uh, you're a part owner in Team Liquid, uh, one of the more successful esports franchises out there. Uh, where does esports fit into all this? I mean, what is the growth potential there? Okay, well, the growth potential is already growth. <laughs> There's an enormous global audience, an enormous, staggering global audience uh, for esports all over the world, certainly in China, in Korea, in the United States, in Europe. And this is a unique thing. People say, well, that's really not a sport. I mean, well, is curling a sport? You know, is, 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 are other tournament things sports? Uh, the idea is this is an activity that's compelling, competitive, and powerful for 
a young audience, an audience from 12, 13 to 30, 31, 32. It's now in colleges with scholarships. It's literally sponsors uh, coming everywhere to reach those millennials. These are not cord cutters. I heard I was on a on a panel and, and they, all the executives who are in their 50s talking about cord cutting. You're missing the subject, guys. These are cord neverers. They never had a cord. So what happens is they see the life through their experience in esports. They see competition that way and they're participating. They can play along with their Steph Currys right along with them. They can be up close and personal with them. They have a unique connection with them. And they are as viral and as active and as aggressive as any sports fan in the world. They're just different. They're different. They're certainly different than me and probably different than you because they've grown up with it. These are folks of, that are digital natives. We're analog, really analog, and not at all. We're digital by maybe picking up some skills, but they're born with it. They look at it through a different lens, and this sport appeals to them. So five years from now, what has a bigger global footprint, the NBA or, or the entire esports market? Well, there'll be, there'll be you know different footprints, and there'll be overlapping footprints. They aren't mutually exclusive. A lot of the esports pl- players are, are you know deeply interested and in follow NBA sports because they like the energy, the experience, the talent, and, and so I think that they're not mutually exclusive. I think they're just another segment of an audience looking to engage themselves in emotional transportation, to be involved, to participate, and I think that's what it gives them. And I think that you'll see. Um, uh, this is a very, still a very young sport, esports, very young. We have wonderful partners. My partner is uh, Ted Leontes, who owns the uh, Washington Capitals up for the Stanley Cup and Washington Wizards. Jeff Vinnick, who owns the Tampa Bay Lightning. You know, Bruce Kosh from Oak Tree. Really, really great partners in it. They all believe that this is a business. Is it show business? Is it sports business? It's audience business, and that audience is powerful. As John Skipper once said, get me eyeballs, I'll monetize. Peter Guber, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate the time. All right, Eben, takeaways from Mr. Guber. He sure brings a lot of energy and a sort of a cosmic feel to the sports world. But I'm telling you, where he hits the mark that others miss is the emotional connection. Yeah, we hear that sports are recession-proof, and people leave it there. You know why? Because people are invested emotionally. They have so much at stake Remember, fan, fanatic, where it comes from? There's so much at stake, and he understands that if people are connected emotionally to the team, to the product, to the venue, to the players, to the owners, that is a home run. You will have the heart, have the mind, have the wallet. Shout out to our first Rudyard Kipling uh, reference of the of the Hoping of the to podcast. bring more, hoping to bring more. <laughs> My takeaway uh, is his insistence. Every question seemed to come back to global. Everything was international. As he said, 300 million people in the U.S., most leagues, the NBA, baseball, NFL, they've tapped that out to a large degree. He's looking at the 7 billion people, a much bigger number than 300 million. That's where he sees real growth in the sports business world. It's why he's invested in esports. It's one of the reasons he's in an MLS team, because soccer is so popular. That is his horizon. His horizon is no longer the U.S. It's international. How many times on this program do the listeners hear the word out of my mouth? It's about scale. You can scale media in arena is number of seats, time number of events. That's a fixed number. Mm -hmm. You can go far and wide with the media. 
My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Okay, Scott, now for our number of the week. Uh, the number is 14. Well, before we get to the number of the week, I want to put a word of the week because Michael Barr was ill and he missed the show. This is our only way to find out if he listens to the show on an off week. So, Michael Barr, wish you uh, wish you well. But the the code word is going to be titsy fly. So, when I ask you for that code word, when I see you, you better know it, or else we'll know you don't listen. What, now, are, what are the odds we get this code word next week? Four percent. Oh, okay. Nice. What, what's our number? Our number is fourteen. 14. And the funny part is we sort of kind of discussed this, but I've forgotten since the interview with Peter. And so I'll I don't give remember. it to you. Uh, it has been 14 years since the Toronto Blue Jays were on primetime in ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, a streak that is going to continue at least for the oh. near future. Uh, and I think you know why. See, all the focus has been on the New York Yankees. And they had a double header because of a rainout. And ESPN scheduled a day game the night before for night. They flexed it. The Yankees got angry. And now baseball and, and ESPN have relented, saying, forget about it. We're not going to do the night game. All the focus has been on the Yankees. Nobody has said, what about the poor Blue Jays? Yeah, let's talk about the real victims <laughs> let's here. Talk, let's the talk Blue about Jays the Blue Jays and, and their fans in Toronto. Oh, that, that, that's sad. But one, it is, again, it shows how much power TV has that they wanted that slot, they wanted the Yankees on that slot, ratings, ratings, ratings. But in the end, when you hear commissioners and owners talking about the core game is what matters most, the Yankees, and I know you and I disagree a little bit on this one, I think the Yankees, I know this was the rule, and ESPN was playing by the rules, but three games in a 24-hour period, you're not going to have your best baseball. And I think common sense ruled the day here. Sure, and and again, my, my position is that Major League Baseball made these deals with ESPN, giving them the option to take this if there is no clause in there that says but you can't within reason. Yeah, but you can't think of everything. If there's not if there's not a crazy scheduling conflict, if that clause isn't in there, then I have no problem with ESPN at least in the beginning flexing that game in. I, I am curious if in the future, if in collective bargaining or whatever it is, there is now a clause added to some of these contracts that says, hey, you are allowed to flex a game from. Sunday into Sunday night, provided the schedule is not so crazy once you do it. Uh, so, so we'll see if that starts to, to, to change a little bit about the, the media world. All right. Big thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams and hope Michael Barr feels better. Michael, I'm just going to give you one name and the sports fans out there will know Wally Pip. TT Fly. You have been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. We're here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Scott Soshnick. You can follow me on Twitter at Soshnick and Eben Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. You can also download the show as an Apple podcast on iTunes. (laughs) 